A good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? Join the authors of Design to Change and explore this series of conversations with designers and event owners. Driven by the need and conversations with event owners and event designers who use the event canvas around the world, this series explores the depths of conversations to elevate your abilities to look and act beyond the now. Episodes are hosted by Rude Janssen, Rue Friesen, Dennis Lehrer, and Paul Rukens, with illustrious changemakers, designers, and pioneers in the field of design and beyond. To explore these conversations and additional content, visit designtochange.online. For now, let's start the conversation. Conversations. All right, welcome, Bill Sherman, all the way from Las Vegas in Nevada. How are you, Bill? I'm doing well. Yourself, Rude? Excellent. Um, Bill is the COO and Thought Leadership Practice Lead, and he's a podcast host, um, which makes me slightly nervous, Bill, because having an expert sitting on the other end from the thought leadership perspective and as a podcast host um, goes to show that um, you know reciprocity in terms of thought leadership is something that bounces back and forth in the mic. And before we get started, um, because we had the opportunity to meet face-to-face first before, before we ever met online, right, Bill? Mm-hmm. And this was at a... Uh, castle in Poland called Chocha Castle at the College of Extraordinary Experiences. I remember that very well. And um, we had some um, very good conversations on site. And I'm glad to see that X number of years later, we are in contact and having good conversations again. So welcome to the show, Bill. It's great to be here. So uh, let me start off with a question that you know from the book Design to Change, uh, which is a good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? So I would say yes, but I would say yes and, right? There are some conversations that are created by serendipity and those you don't expect you fall into and they're delightful. But there are also ones which are planned conversations. They're purposeful where both sides sit down and they know they're going to have an important conversation. So I believe in chance and I also believe in preparation. Terrific. I like that. Chance and preparation. So let's, let's take this to this next step that we always uh, are curious about. And that is the question, uh, what's currently on your horizon of change, uh, Bill? So several things. On the professional level, one of the things for me that's a transformation is a change in my role. Not only from being practice lead, but also being the vocal advocate for the development of the practice of thought leadership within organizations. And so instead of being the consultant and back of house advisor, now taking a more front of house vocal advocate for the role, right? And so that is something that has been ramping up over the last six months and continues to elevate. On the personal side, it's about sustaining change. So a couple of years ago, I made a commitment towards running, ran my first half marathon, as we record this about a week ago. Okay. And that was two years of training because I started with heart failure, right? And so now having completed the first half marathon, 
the next question is, okay, how do I improve from here? How do I technically take what I've done, I completed it, and get better? And that is no small feat, right? Running a half marathon, and I remember us speaking about that uh, earlier, um, where, um, if I remember correctly, if I can quote that from, from your cardiologist who said, um, how, or you actually said, how, how do I become your best patient? And I really liked that, that, that approach. Could you, could you maybe give, give the, those that are listening a little bit of an insight into that? Absolutely. So when I was diagnosed with heart failure, and this was back in 2014, I made a choice, right? That was a moment of change and transformation. When the doctor said, okay, the heart that you've relied on, it isn't beating, not the way that it should. And walking across a room from one side to the other was physically exhausting for me. And so I looked at the doctor and I said, okay, I want to live the longest, healthiest, happiest life that I can. What do I need to do to be your star patient? Give me the list of things that are my responsibility. Medications can only go so far. Devices and pacemakers can only do so much. But some of this is on me. And his response was cardio. And so I started by, I can't say running because, well, the beginning was walking across a room. And then from there, building step by step. Some people do couch to 5K programs. I did the hospital bed to 5K, and then from 5K to 10K, and 10K to half marathon. Wow, that's an impressive, uh, and also necessary change, right? So something that you consciously chose to do uh, for your own sake, and for the sake of carrying on with life in the best possible way. So that's a, that sounds like a massive, let's say, personal transformation there. Absolutely. Change to diet, change to how I shape my days, what I choose to do, what I choose to let go of, and yeah. recognizing that I can't do everything. Therefore, I have to focus on the things that are truly important. Wow. That's a, that's a powerful lesson there, uh, Bill. And I like the approach that, that, you know, where you said, how do I become your star patient? Because doctors are also proud of their successes in medicine and if you can be the star patient then you know that they've been successful so you've looked at it from the other perspective as well well and we know both human behavior and then psychological research if you're working with someone they are more likely to put in extra effort when they know you're going above and beyond as well right and so if i want my cardiologist to not only see me as a person, but also a person that they want to succeed and push and do their very best, I've got to meet them. And I've got to show them that I'm the trailblazer leading the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of those achievements that you've achieved. I saw that uh, posted uh, where you said I was exhausted after the, after the half marathon because it does take a toll on the body, I suppose. Uh, for it anyone, does. let alone if you're a, a, a person with heart failure, right, with, with, a, with a condition. Yeah. Well, and I count myself fortunate because not everyone who has a condition or heart failure, for example, can transform their lives, right? So I was fortunate both through the type 
of heart failure I had, but also then through the care and support that I had. Mm. And I found myself after crossing the finish line sitting down and just reflecting. And I remember November 2014, I wasn't sure whether the amount of time I had measured left was a month or two. And I was sitting down and preparing and actually wrote a letter to my wife that said, okay, to be delivered if something happened to me. So after I was gone. And so trying to put the pieces together at the same time fighting for a future. Wow. Then the concept of time takes up a completely new dimension, right? Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it's also very joyful. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on that horizon of change, which which is a big one, right? You you were talking about both becoming a more vocal advocate, sustaining that change, but also on the personal level, this this uh, this personal transformation that you're going through. uh, Bill, from this, from from this, um, let's say uh, crossroads, we can take uh, two uh, two sides. One of them is we can carry down the pathway of um, of the horizons of change, or if you like, we can spin the wheel and uh, see what comes up and serendipitously see, see what the next um, uh, topics will be that we're going to address in this conversation. Which one would you pick? Let's spin the wheel. All right, let's spin the wheel. I'm going to pop up the wheel and uh, we're going to take a look at uh, what comes up here. Aha, claiming time. So claiming time, Bill, is, you know, I mean, you've, you've claimed time literally for yourself. You were just saying that, right? So. You have choices in life um, when it comes to time and timing. And you um, have claimed that time not just from uh, yourself, but also from the people around you. And I think that's a, that's a very powerful concept. Let's, let's dig down with the perspective of, let's pretend that um, designers who need to claim time from whoever takes a decision regarding the change they're looking to make. Um, Let's let's look at it through that lens, if we if we will. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, if you like, uh, to see if we can um, take that conversation um, down a specific alley. Here's the first one. Um, what did you previously do, right? Um, what did you do previously, whereby you were not being taken seriously when somebody that owned an event or somebody that wanted a big piece of change? Um, uh, and you were having a conversation with that person about the change, but you felt like that you like you weren't like you weren't getting through to them. Is there is there a situation that you can remember, um, and and can you remember the kind of behaviors that you demonstrated in that situation? Yes. So one example that comes to mind is, and I'll set it up a little bit. So my work is putting ideas on stage and taking ideas to scale through thought leadership, right? And I work with a lot of organizations. And when they put an idea on stage, sometimes they will do massive amounts of research. They will plan for their user group event to deploy this, or they'll put it in a white paper, or they want to get this idea out to the world. And they dress it up in its very finest, right? They get the smartest person on stage. They get um, 
graphic designers to design the white paper, what, however they're delivering it, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I often have to do is pause and look the, the idea owner in their eye and say, okay, who is this for and what do you want them to do, right? Because it's very easy to get wrapped up in your own idea or in the event as a whole. I've sometimes created the analogy that thought leadership practice and events in some ways are very much like cats with boxes. They fall in love with the container rather than the thing that's inside of it. And so what we need to focus on is what's inside. And this is very much the design to change mindset. What are the entry behaviors? What do you want them to do coming out of it? And you have to insert this delicate and deliberate pause. And sometimes it's uncomfortable when you look at an event owner or a business owner in their eye and say, okay, but so what? I like that. What do you want to get out of it as a result of this, right? And the pause can sometimes be uncomfortable. Oh, very much so. Very much so. And they can sometimes realize they've spent a lot of time worried about what I would describe as window dressing Mm -hmm. rather than substance. Yeah. And with the best graphic designers in the world and the best eloquent speakers. Oh, yeah. It looks beautiful. It can still... It can have all the aesthetic uh, elements or all the all the all the quality elements that you think it will have, but it's in the essence that the um, that the conversation has quality, right? Or the or the actual idea comes across. Yeah. Well, and when you think about the transmission of an idea, whether you're doing research or you're doing an event and a conference or whatever, the spend on that can be hundreds of thousands, can be millions right and the question becomes okay at the end of the day how did you move the needle what changes after this what do people who have encountered the idea do differently and if you can't answer that question you've burned a lot of money yeah so as part of that conversation you need to claim time of the person you're talking with in order to design the content of the container, right? And sometimes you claim time by inserting time. That awkward pause where you ask the question and you wait for an answer, even if the pause becomes uncomfortable, right? And they hope you move on and you you just keep digging, maybe asking again and again until they realize that the things that they've spent time on aren't the ones that are going to produce the results they need. And then being able to admit that to yourself or in a conversation when you're far down the line can be a difficult moment of realization, right? For the owner of that idea or the owner of that event or the owner of that thought leadership piece that they're looking to produce. Absolutely. And it has to be done with empathy and compassion because often events or thought leadership activities wind up having a momentum of their own, right? 
Why do we do this research study? Because we've done it the last 10 years. Why do we do this conference? We've done it 10 years. It's what people expect. And it's easy to start falling into a pattern without asking yourself, why? So it sounds like you, and I know you, you, you have a series of frameworks that you have in your mind that, that you articulated that are also available, by the way. We'll, we'll put the links in the, in, in the comments. Um, but could you address what kind of, let's say, um, what kind of process do you use in that? Is it more internalized in your head or is it something that's visible to the other people? Or, and, and if so, um, uh, how, do you, how do you make sure that people opt into the way that you do these things? So a couple of things there. The opt-in is often around trust building, right? And to be able to signal that you have gone through this process before, you have led others through this process, and that you will get them from A to B. Your role as a designer who is guiding someone who may be new to this process or new to thinking in this way, your role is to be the trusted guide, to be able to challenge them when they need to be challenged, to support them when they need support, and to help them consider things that they're not considering, right? And so it is probably harder at the beginning of your career if someone asks and says, well, where have you done this before? And you have very little experience. But the further you go, the more you can draw upon success and say, we've got this. We will reach the destination. In terms of frameworks and processes, we tend to focus first with strategy and we focus on the things that are, our, our frameworks are similar, articulated in different ways, right? So it's about audience. It's about entry behaviors and exit behaviors. It's about the idea that you want to communicate. So, and an idea isn't a book, it's not an article. It's often a sentence, maybe two. And the idea at its heart causes someone to say, aha, I see the world differently based on what you say. I may or may not agree with you. Tell me more. And that tell me more is the invitation and permission to have a conversation. I love that. Yeah. So, um, this implies actually the next question, which is what buttons are you pushing to get what you need in order to prepare yourself in the best possible way? What, what buttons are you pushing? To get are you talking you internal buttons or buttons within client or colleagues? So what I'm talking about here is primarily back to that event owner, the one that wants to share that idea. Um, how do you get them in that spot when you've claimed the time um, like what buttons do you push to get what you need out of that in order to do your best work? So the first one is obviously preparing the space for the conversation and making sure that when they come in, they're focused. And if they're not focused or distracted, that's a danger, right? So you have to claim that time. Once you have their attention, once they're paying attention, you really need to figure out what's motivating them and why is this important to them is it they're focused on 
you know, their performance review, their bonus, you know, a key metric that matters to them. All of those things you have to sort of be ready to adapt to. But often I'll ask and say, okay, you want this to be a success. Why does it matter to the organization? Why does this matter to you? And if this were a success, what needs to happen? And I like and I like that, you know, from an organizational perspective, from a personal perspective, where you're really digging into the, you know, the potential pains and the articulated ones, which may be partly needs, but the first expression of a need, maybe, right? There's sometimes where when you're digging into goals and objectives, there's a little bit of therapy involved, right? <laughs> where you have to be willing to listen. Organizations sometimes have conflicting needs, like families often have conflicting, you know, goals and desires. And so what your client may want to achieve may also need the support of others who are hesitant. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next question here. Um, how can you and your team zoom out and empathize with the event owner to address their required outcomes? And you alluded to it a little bit already, but let's say if you're working with some of your team members, what, what can you do um, to zoom out and empathize with that event owner? So first thing that I'd say is the small talk matters. You need to get to know the person that you're working with beyond the project. And so whether you're sitting down for lunch or you have a cup of coffee together or you meet on Zoom for a conversation, getting to know that person, the ability to sit, to listen, what makes them laugh, what makes them smile, what do they do in their free time? You know, if you do not see the whole person in front of you, it is very hard to connect with them on the project level because all it becomes is a series of widgets and transactions rather than collaboration. And so you have to acknowledge the person you're working with has an idea, has a goal, has a message they want to get to the world, has an outcome they want to produce. And what I find often is the common space for working together is finding that moment of shared joy where you're working on things that you're good at and you have joy as well as they're in their zone doing things they excel at, they're proud of their work, and they're joyful to be doing it. Now, we all have sometimes when we wake up on a Monday morning where we're like, I could have slept in longer. That's not what I'm talking about. It's that moment of shared purpose and finding that moment of shared purpose. Yeah. When, you, <clears throat> when you've established that, and this is kind of a side question to this one. So let's, let's pretend that you've established that rapport, uh, rapport with the person that you're working with directly. And then a team member of yours needs to, needs to interact with that same person, maybe on a different level. Um, how do you, is there, is there a good way of transitioning that kind of moment of joy or, or how do you, how do you, how do you include that third person? How do you vectorize, let's say the relationship with the third person? So when, when you're leading, some of your responsibility 
is to credentialize, to include, and bring in your team early, right? And sometimes you intentionally step back and shine the spotlight on them so that they can earn the trust and build the rapport with the client that you're working with or the project owner, right? And by take, allowing that distance, what you're signaling is you trust your team and you're proud of them. And so one of the things a leader should be doing is be joyful and proud of the work of their team. And if you're not, there's either a problem within you or you're leading the wrong team. Yeah, very interesting. So social media has lots of ways of encouraging that, but the conversations that we're having like this live m might be listened to by people that are now nodding their head and going, hmm, where could I learn more about what Bill is just talking about? Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to point out, because you know we, we said this in the beginning, you as a podcast host uh, for the Thought Leadership Podcast have a very specific, let's say, process and way of doing your podcast recordings. Um, and I noticed that the way that what you're just articulating is something you also do in practice. And now people that have not been on your podcast may not know how that exactly works. But I think it's a fascinating uh, also a process that you've put in place in order to, um, um, to transition that trust and to vectorize the relationship with multiple people on the team. So one of the things that I've observed and noticed is meetings and conversations that are often in a meeting room take on a stilted tone, right? What a stilted tone. Stilt so it's a little bit often formal. It's not as authentic, not as relaxed. We're wearing masks some of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So I value the conversations that have more of a coffee shop conversation where we sit down at a table, you and I imagine there's an empty seat. And that's how I'm envisioning this, this conversation as well. We're sitting having coffee. There's an empty seat. Someone walks by, picks a cup of coffee up and sits down and listens in. If you make a conversation that's inclusive, that people overhear it and say, oh, I want to join that, that's interesting, then you're doing your work well and making that connection. I like that. So there's always the, the imaginary third seat. And when you're listening to this podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you're taking mental notes of some of the things that Bill is saying. Um, and if you want to join that conversation, there's a hashtag uh, designed to change that you can use. And I know, you know, Bill is active on social media. You can look him up on LinkedIn. Uh, these conversations will perpetuate and you can be included in them. And we encourage you to do that as well. So if you're listening in, um, unless you're driving, uh, make sure that after you listen in, uh, you, uh, you look that up and, 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 and connect to Bill. Um, let's go to this next question, which is, um, is your event owner not ready or are you as the event designer not ready? Right. So I'm, I'm putting you a little bit on your hind legs when you think back of maybe that one conversation where the claiming time wasn't as successful as you normally would want it to be. And, and I'm sure there's a situation where you're thinking, oh, I wish I could have done that conversation over with that event owner. In that situation, were you not ready or where was the event owner not ready? So 
I approach from a communication standpoint with a simple hypothesis that if I'm communicating to someone else, whether that's someone on my team or a client, and I'm not seeing feedback that signals they're in agreement or they're not understanding, my first step is I assume the miscommunication is mine rather than theirs, right? And it's it's something I've learned over some 20 years of my career that instead of going, oh, they don't get it, I need to stop and say, what am I not making easy for them to understand? Where am I not prepared? And so it's easy to assign blame to others, but I find that if I operate from a position where I may not be communicating well, I may not have equipped them with what they needed, that co causes me to be in a productive mindset rather than a combative mindset. Yeah. And I like that, the, the productive instead of the combative mindset, right, of fight or yeah, flight, you can uh, spend, which is, yeah, which is a natural reaction. Of, yeah. You can spend tons of time arguing over who's to blame. And that's not the point. The point is to get to results. Yeah. yeah. So getting that outcome, whether you're the owner or the designer, it's, it's, uh, it's relevant for both to claim the time at the right time. And sometimes preparation in a conversation can also mean that you wind back a little bit and you, let's say, although you know that you can only change the thing in the moment right now, you can back up and recreate a past moment and restart from that point. And Very, yeah. with miscommunications, they lead to moments of crisis and fire drills. And the sooner that you learn to smell smoke, if you will, and recognize that there is not shared agreement, there is not shared vision, the sooner you smell that smoke, don't wait to call it out. Align around that, put it on the table, and talk about it. Because if you smell smoke, it never gets better on its own. <laughs> Absolutely. On that uh, smoke note, I'm going to give. Um, I'm going to ask you two questions, Bill. The first one is. Um, would you mind, um, and, and, and we'll send you the link, right? Um, um, those questions that we were just asking to give us in staccato, just a, you know, short little answers that we can include in the, in the comments then of, of the podcast, because I think it might be helpful for people to, um, to relate to. Would you be willing to do that? Sure. Excellent. Um, then the other question we have is around what we started off with, with the design to change question. Um, in order to see change over time, you know, you mentioned from, you know, couch to half marathon or from a hospital bed to half marathon. Those are a very clear delta. Um, we'd like to invite you a year from today to this very same podcast and look back at your horizon of change where your advocacy to become more vocal in what you do on your professional level, but also sustaining the change on your personal level. Could, uh, could we call on you in a year from today and to look back at this past horizon and see where we are then? Absolutely. Terrific. On that note, um, we're going to go off stage and uh, we'll meet you backstage in uh, just a moment. Uh, so hang in tight, uh, Bill. Thank you, Rude.
This has been another episode of the Design to Change Designer Conversation Series. Explore these conversations and additional content at designtochange.online. Want more right now? Tune into the backstage episode of this conversation and hear what the experts discuss offstage. 